You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And last week on our episode, we discussed GMO myths and misconceptions. Um, There's a lot of material to unpack there, but we addressed a lot of the common misconceptions, such as uh, GMOs themselves are harmful or cause medical issues, that they're bad for the environment, um, that GMO products, uh, particularly food products, are not as healthy or nutritious as their conventional counterparts. Um, Of course, none of these are true. Um, You can tune into the episode to get a debunk of those. One of the biggest myths is that GMOs are not studied when, in fact, they are the most thoroughly studied food product on the market. And we also discussed a lot of marketing fear mongering um, that really preys on the uh, misinformation that's promoted by these marketing organizations that ultimately is a detriment to the consumer. Um, I think the feedback was very positive, so I encourage everybody to check Check that episode out. So, hey, Andrea, uh, this episode is being released three days before Thanksgiving. Um, I know, you know, we're all kind of gearing up for the holidays here. Uh, I'm sure everyone has been in heated discussions about what plans are going to look like this year. Uh, Things are going to be very different in 2020. Uh, And what we're hoping to cover on this episode today is just a recap of the state of COVID and spoiler alert, uh, things are really out of control right now. And it's more important than ever uh, to stay in your bubble and not, you know, have any of these large gatherings. And we know that that's, of course, really disappointing. And it's been a really tough year for all of us. And it would be so nice to to gather with extended family and friends. But um, that's just not in the cards this year. So let's kick things off and talk a little bit about what our own plans are. And then we could just dive into the, the current state of COVID. So Andrew, how are you celebrating Thanksgiving this year? So this year, it's it's just going to be the two of us. Um, you know, normally we go down to Josh's aunt's for a big extended family Thanksgiving dinner with, you know, his, his aunts, um, his cousins, his parents, um, lots of family friends and childhood friends, um, you know, gather in, in Maryland. Um, and of course, um, you know, none of us are doing any of that. We're all staying um, at our respective homes and staying within our uh, individual, you know, residences. Um, I am cooking a Thanksgiving meal, um, but it's just going to be for two this year. <laughs> mm. so I'm in a similar boat. So usually uh, we get together with my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, my cousin's children, uh, but definitely not happening this year. Um, actually, my my hubby is an ER doc. So he's, uh, Ethan's working on Thanksgiving, which is a real bummer. Um, so I'm actually kind of cheating and picking up 
we're taking out some Thanksgiving food. We're actually supporting a, a local small business, um, picking up some food. So on Thanksgiving, it'll just be my mom and, and my kiddos and me. Um, and then I think the next day that Ethan's off is on Saturday, and that's when we'll cook a turkey. But it'll just be our little small unit, our bubble, uh, no extended family or friends this year. So yeah. definitely looking different. We'll probably get on phone calls or Zooms and do some sort of, you know, toast at one point or another in the evening. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, it, yeah. It was cool. We posted that Zoom is, um, they're they're dropping that 40 minute limit, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that you guys, you know, if you, if you are doing a Zoom Thanksgiving, obviously it's not the same, but still nice to at least see your, your family and friends. Um, they're dropping that 40 minute limit. So I don't think there's any limit now. Right. So you can yeah. stay on for hours. You could, you could <laughs> in theory, have it on all day while you're cooking. Everybody's in their own kitchens and you're chatting about how you burn the potatoes or whatever the case happens to be. <laughs> And then you can keep it on when you're all passed out on the couch after dinner. (laughs) All right. So let's jump into things. Uh, Let's talk about some of the current COVID-19 stats. Um, And Andrea, I so I keep a little dashboard and I update it daily uh, with the moving averages. And every time this past week that I've been updating the numbers, it's just more and more depressing. Uh, The number of cases, hospitalizations, deaths, they're they're really exponentially increasing and we're breaking all kinds of records. So um, as of November 19th, States reported 1.8 million tests, 183,000 cases, and 81,000 people currently hospitalized with COVID. Uh, Reported deaths were just under 2,000. It was 1,971, which is the highest since May. So uh, test, case, and hospitalization counts broke all-time records. Yikes. Uh, That is very, very um, nerve-wracking and quite horrifying. It is. And then, so if I pull up the dashboard, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at covidtracking.com. I don't know if you, you guys are familiar with the COVID tracking project. Uh, it's a but great I, tool. If, if none of our listeners uh, are aware of it, it, it posts every single day. It does a daily update with the, the seven day moving average. Yeah, um, it's it's awesome. And they have really easy to read, you know, dashboards, and you can um, see all the different charts, uh, data over time and trending. And the other great thing is that they they also have a COVID racial data tracker, and you can see the disparities. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. Um, but I was just looking at our, our death, uh, the death count is we're we're rapidly approaching 250,000 deaths in less than one year, which is so crazy to me. Um, We're recording this on November 20th, and the death count is at 243,675. When I look at our country, I mean, obviously, there are disparities or, you know, differences across the different states. There, I don't know if if you guys are seeing what's going on in North Dakota and South Dakota. um, But North Dakota and South Dakota rank number one and number three, respectively, in the world (laughs) with regard to uh, COVID-19 deaths per million capita. That's in the entire world. Um, 
at, let me just see here. Sorry, I'm just looking at this in real time. The U.S. has 18 of the 50 worst COVID-19 hotspots with the highest mortality worldwide. So we are not doing well in the U.S. right now. Um, And, you know, I, I think something that we wanted to mention to our listeners is that a lot of times... I hear, you know, oh, okay, we see that cases are increasing, but we're not seeing the same with hospitalizations and deaths. And it's so important to understand the data lags, right? So mm-hmm. it's about, uh, on average, after you see the number of cases go up, there's about a 12-day lag when you'll see the corresponding hospitalizations go up, and then a 20 uh, on average, 22-day lag between cases and deaths. So just so so what you're saying is basically all new cases that we're logging essentially this week, we're not going to be recording those potential hospitalizations until well after Thanksgiving and in theory deaths uh, not until around Christmas time. Is that right? That is right. And there's that really depressing, I don't know if it's a meme or whatever. There, there's a, 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 oh my God, a tweet that's gone viral. And it says, and help me through this, Andrea, but it's, <laughs> if you, the, the cases that we're seeing on Thanksgiving, or if you get infected on Thanksgiving, you'll be in the ICU uh, in, what is it? Help me, help me. What is oh, it? Oh, I no. don't remember. It's, it's something like in the ICU in in December, December and then in the more on Christmas, Christmas. Yeah. right? It's something yeah. really depressing, but it's, it's true. It's so true. Yeah. I think that lag is a really important, um, distinction. Um, and, and if you look at the, the 14 day trends, which basically take that, that seven day moving, um, you know, average and calculates it on a weekly change basis, um, you know, the case numbers are uh, currently at a 73% increase compared to two weeks ago. The deaths are at a 63% increase compared to two weeks ago. And the hospitalizations are 50% increase. So, you know, the, the claim that, you know, we're not seeing the changes in deaths and hospitalizations, you know, at this point is just patently false. Um, we've currently exceeded all records for numbers of persons hospitalized at any point during the pandemic at this point. Should we talk about test positivity now, maybe? Yes. And I think maybe, Jess, this is a great way to segue into our herd from the herd for this week. So something that that Jess and I hear a lot is, you know, we're just seeing more cases because we're just administering more tests. Uh, Jess, you want to debunk that? Oh, my God. I, I, I don't even know where to begin with this. But um, basically, we'll... I, well, I'm I'm looking at last week's data, and I know that we saw a jump in cases. Um, it was a, a min, minimum of forty percent. I think you just cited seventy three percent, and that's because now you know things are going up exponentially. But when I looked at last week's data, the the jump in cases was forty percent, and then the corresponding jump in testing was only thirteen percent. So clearly, this is not just a function of more testing. Um, what did you say our, our average national testing uh, positivity rate is? Now? The average, na- and it's hard to do a national average because we have so much variability state to state because we don't have a national approach to curbing the pandemic. But if you want to simplify, the average national test positivity rate is 10%. 
And the World Health Organization, where we, we've set a threshold, we, we want to see about 5%. That's what we're aiming for. And currently at the national level, we're at 10%. And if you look at certain states, that test positivity rate is actually much higher than 10%. Um, ideally, you, you actually want to see a 3% test positivity rate. That's really demonstrating viral suppression and telling us that we're doing a good amount of testing and that we're getting the virus under control. Obviously, um, we are not anywhere near that right now, and the test positivity is only climbing. Uh, worth mentioning that in New York City, their threshold for school closures is at 3%. Um, and I think it was either yesterday or the, or the day before uh, that New York City just made the call to close schools indefinitely because they've uh, surpassed a 3% testing yeah. rate. And I would say New York City is actually much more stringent than many other places because they got hit so hard in the beginning. Um, you know, I'll say where, where I am in, in southeastern Pennsylvania, um, you know, our test positivity rate is, is aligned with that national average. In my county, it's about 8.9. And in Philadelphia County, it's a little over 11%. Um, you know, something, something that I think, you know, we really need to emphasize is that we are doing more cases on a daily basis. Um, but that number is increasing linearly. Um, so we're just doing kind of, you know, moderately more cases on a day by day basis, whereas the test the the positive cases, the actual cases of COVID are increasing exponentially and very, mm -hmm. very um, at a sharp, a sharp incline. Two other things I, I just wanted to mention here is that um, remember, one of the main reasons that we're so you know, nervous about COVID is that we're overwhelming our health system and we just don't have the capacity. We don't have the hospital beds or the ICU capacity. So if you look at what's going on in pockets of the country, you know, we just mentioned North Dakota, South Dakota, they just, they don't have the, you know, the ability to, to deal with, with th this amount of, of sick people. So the hospitals are getting overrun. Um, in El Paso, Texas right now, I mean, it's, it's a total disaster. We're seeing, those dreaded refrigerated trucks out back of these hospitals because the morgues are being overrun. I mean, it's it's really quite a scene. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Andrea, I you know we um, I think we posted about how the the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, their their rates are off the charts. So I'm trying to pull up um, what their stats were, but uh, more than 900 employees at at, a, at the Mayo Clinic, which is of course a top research hospital. It's based in Minnesota. Um, more than 900 employees have contracted COVID-19 in the last two weeks. And the really interesting thing, Andrea, that you pointed out was that the vast majority of the staff who were infected, 93% were not infected at work. Yeah. And that's really important because it's showing us how rampant it is. You know, it's so easy to get COVID, especially right now we're looking at the Midwest, uh, pockets of the South and, and the West in particular. Um, so anyway, I, I just thought that that was a really interesting statistic. And one last thing I'll say is that um, uh, I think the, the, the mortality rate or the fatality rate in um, 
I think it was North Dakota. It's one in 1,000 people in North Dakota um, are are dying of COVID right now. I hope I'm not messing up that statistic. I'm trying to pull it up in in real time as we're talking about this. But all this is just to drive home the metrics. Numbers aren't lying. The number of cases are going up. And again, that corresponds to an increase in hospitalizations and deaths. And even though there's a lag, there is a clear uh, correlation in the uh, increasing trends. Sorry, yeah, you're about to and, say and even in even in places um, that you know had done a pretty good job of curbing, um, you know the the spring and summer, you know bumps. I want to call it a bump because those weren't peaks. I mean, we've we've exceeded that those other peaks by orders of magnitude at this point. Um, you know, such as you know where I am in in um, you know Philly suburbs. Um, they're projecting that pe- that Philly and Pennsylvania are going to run out of ICU beds by mid-December, and that's and that's if we extrapolate the current trends. Um, I suspect with you know many people still planning large gatherings for Thanksgiving, um, that that rate might in 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 fact accelerate. So it is very alarming. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Sorry, I just wanted to confirm. I, I, I think I got it right. It was it, one in every 1,000 North Dakota residents has been killed by COVID, which is a sobering statistic. Sorry, just wanted yeah, to no, confirm no, that. It, it really is. Um, and I think something that that's important before we kind of just reiterate a lot of the the best practices is that, you know, right now, um, you know, the situation is very different. We have much fewer restrictions really across the country. Um, you know, places that had done a shutdown earlier this year are not doing shutdowns. Um, you know, people are gathering um, more frequently indoors, especially in the Northeast, Midwest areas where it, it does get cold for the winter season. Um, you know, so big picture wise, you know, they're, Unless we take really dramatic individual actions, um, it's going to be really challenging to to stop this this continued spread. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe it's a good idea. Should we review uh, transmission routes and risky activities? Yeah, think- absolutely. I think that's a good a good idea. So you know, we know that the two predominant transmission routes are are droplet spread. Um, that's person to person spread at short range. Um, with with infected respiratory droplets. Um, we also know now that um a, a secondary mode of transmission is is true airborne transmission. What that means is that those smaller respiratory droplets get suspended in the air, um, particularly with poorly ventilated spaces. So indoor areas with, with not great ventilation. Um, and that can actually transmit the virus to people um, at further distances or even well after the infected person has left the room. Um, I think that that's really critical to keep in mind because a lot of states that had mask mandates or mask recommendations, they weren't requiring masking indoors if you could maintain this six-foot bubble. And I want to be clear that the six-foot bubble is not a magic number. Um, that's kind of 
of the the average distance that a, a respiratory droplet can spray out of someone's mouth. But if we're talking about airborne transmission, um, you know, indoors, that six foot is irrelevant. If, if we have airborne transmission, those droplets are going to spread far and wide. Um, and it's interesting that Pennsylvania in particular just updated their mask mandate that now they're requiring masks indoors at all times, including when you can create social distancing. And also when you're in your own home, if you have people that don't live with you in your home. And I think that's really critical because large drivers of community spread are due to people having sleepovers, having indoor parties, having indoor gatherings, um, not just in their homes, but in other places too. Well, bravo, Pennsylvania. Uh, um, okay. One other thing, uh, fomite transmission. I know that it's not a primary transmission wrap, but maybe just worth mentioning. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, so your fomites are, um, your, your inanimate objects or other surfaces, non-human surfaces, because we've, we've had some chatter that potentially a pet could be a fomite, but these are non-person surfaces that could, um, you know, have infected, um, respiratory particles on them that you could, in theory, pick up and infect yourself. So the working theory now is that um, unless there was a, a person with a very high viral load that had coughed or sneezed on a surface and you had touched that surface pretty soon after that person had contaminated it, um, it's probably a pretty low risk. Um, obviously, I still wash my hands whenever I touch something that's not in my home, including grocery bags and things like that. But um, you know, the, the compulsive sanitation, um, you know, sanitizing surfaces and things like that is probably less critical than things like wearing your mask and adhering to distancing rules. Right. We, we talked about that on a past episode, how, you know, originally way back in the beginning of this whole pandemic, uh, you know, we were both, you know, I was like in a hazmat suit when I would, <laughs> you know, unpack my groceries and obsessively disinfecting surfaces and, and rinsing the outside of containers. And I'm doing less of that. But exactly as you said, still still washing hands. Um, at, yeah, anytime I'm touching anything outside my household. Yeah. So, yep. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, aside from the the transmission route, something, of course, that's going to adjust risk is going to be whether or not an activity is indoors or outdoors. Um, and certainly outdoors when compared to indoors is less risky in and of itself. However, there's a lot of things that add to risk. So you can take something that's normally really low risk, and by adding all of these risk parameters, you can make it a very risky activity. So risk parameters would be the number of people outside of your immediate you know, household that are involved, uh, the duration of potential exposure, so how long are you with these other people, um, the proximity of the exposure, of course, how close you are to these other people, uh, the, the ventilation available, and of course, that, that could be you know, indoors versus outdoors or indoors with good ventilation versus indoors with poor ventilation, and then the presence or absence of masks. So all of these risk parameters can be cumulative. So something outdoors, if there's thousands of people, you're crammed into a small space, nobody's wearing masks, and you're there for several hours, can actually lead to a potential spreading community spread event. 
I'm so glad you just said that because obviously the the nightmare situation is having a bunch of people from different households crammed indoors around a table, not ma- wearing masks for extended periods of time, talking and eating for hours. I mean, that, that's huh. a nightmare. That sounds but- like Thanksgiving dinner to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. L- look at that. Um, and I think, um, you know, some people are trying to mitigate by moving that out doors. And, you know, I I think what you were just getting at, Andrea, is that, yes, you know, that that's going to reduce the risk. But still, if you're surrounded, you know, if you're still sitting next to each other at a table with people who do not live in your household and you're not wearing masks because you're you're eating, you know, the, the risk is still high. Like to me, just moving it outside is not going to solve it, especially if you're, you know, sitting outside eating for, for many hours. It's just, this is just a mess. That's why our advice, keep it to your own household. Just don't, don't introduce that risk. Um, something else that I, I've heard a lot of people uh, are doing, they're testing. And Andrew, I know we've got a lot of a lot to say about this, but basically they're they're testing. A lot of people are getting rapid tests in particular, and they're saying, okay, you know, everyone gets tested. If it's a negative test, we're clear. We have an immunity pass. We can all sit and gather safely at Thanksgiving. Where do we begin, Andrea? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, getting tested is certainly better than not getting tested, but but of I think course. we really need to talk about the limitations of testing. So um, I think first, maybe it's useful to talk about the incubation period of this virus. And, and this is, again, one of the biggest uh, challenges with curbing the spread is that it has a very long incubation period. So, you know, something like influenza has an incubation period of 24 to 48 hours. So very short and pretty soon after you're infected, you're going to feel crappy. With, with COVID-19, the incubation period is two to 14 days. So you could be walking around, be contagious, um, be, be um, you know, infecting um, other people, not knowing it because you feel physically fine um, and, and leading to large amounts of community spread. Um, we also have a large proportion of people that that have asymptomatic illness, so they don't feel sick, but they are still contagious even beyond that 14-day incubation period. Right. Um, even, even for folks that do develop symptoms, um, there's a lag between when you're contagious and when you feel sick. So you're most contagious two days before um, you develop symptoms and and one day after your symptoms onset with kind of a, a drop off in infectivity as the, the illness progresses. So, you know, two days when you're walking around feeling fine and potentially infecting people is a long time to to uh, be potentially spreading that virus around. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that they're all going to get tested two days before Thanksgiving and say, OK, we're all clear. And, you know, I think that's that's a really critical point where. If you get tested too soon, you're going to have a false negative result, meaning your test is going to say you're negative, but you could, in fact, still be in that incubation period and maybe creeping up on that contagious period. Oh, gosh, yes. Timing is everything. And I and I think that, you know, tests are kind of getting a, a bad rap because people don't really understand that actually, in particular, PCR testing, and I know we're going to talk about the different types of, of tests in just a minute, they're, they're highly accurate 
if given at the right time. So um, you have to wait, you know, if you're not symptomatic, uh, you're supposed to wait about you know, at least five days after your exposure to get tested. So if you're getting tested before five days, it's it's not that the, the test is not accurate. It's that you're just not getting tested at the right time. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, really critical because all these tests have what we call a limit of detection, meaning there's an amount of virus that has to be present in a sample that the test can accurately detect it. Um, and the PCR tests, particularly the traditional PCR tests, have much uh, much more sensitive limits of detection, meaning they can detect can detect less virus present. When we start talking about the rapid tests, they have much less sensitivity, meaning you need a lot of virus. You need to be almost just overflowing with virus in order to accurately uh, detect them. And that's that's ultimately a, a downside. So I think maybe um, we can quickly review the, the types of diagnostic tests that are available and, and those pros and cons. So we've got our traditional PCR tests. Those are what we call the molecular tests. Those are looking for your viral RNA, so pieces of the virus genetic material. Um, and then within the PCR test, you have the traditional ones, which take, you know, a few hours to a couple of days to get the results back. Um, and then you have the rapid one. And, and um, then you also have another type of test called the antigen test, which is looking for a piece of viral protein instead of the virus RNA. And the only antigen tests that are currently available are, are rapid tests. Um, now, both the rapid molecular tests, the PCR-based tests, and the rapid antigen tests um, are able to give you results within a matter of minutes. Now, this is really useful if we're using it to kind of screen large swaths of the population. But as I just mentioned, these rapid tests, they sacrifice accuracy. So they need a much higher viral load in order to accurately detect a, a true positive result. Um, in particular, the rapid antigen tests can report up to 50% false negatives. Um, the, the optimal timing for the rapid antigen test is really right around that peak contagious period. Um, you don't have as long a time window that the, the test accuracy will be there. And again, you really have to be just, you know, overflowing with, with viral load at that point for a really accurate test on that. Um, so using those as kind of, um, you know, uh, an immunity pass, as you said, is really a false sense of security um, simply due to the limitations of the testing. Um, I, I, go ahead, I'm just going to say, I, I'm in particular, I just, I'm really uneasy about these rapid tests. I, I, I think that uh, you just hit the nail on the head, of course, is that it's like these large surveillance efforts, you know, that that's where I see the rapid tests being most valuable. But at the individual level, I just, I worry about their utility with this, you know, high rate of, um, what, what was it up to 50% yeah. uh, I, I, inaccurate results. So I, I just, it makes me so nervous that so many people, I mean, even, oh God, I hate to even bring them up, but you know, the Kardashians, you know, they, they just hosted this huge party. I don't know, one of their birthdays and the way that they justified it is that they had folks taking these rapid tests yeah. before they entered the party. This it's just giving people a false sense of security. Really, I, I hesitate to use any tests as you know. You can't use them as immunity passes. You yeah, still absolutely. have to take all of those precautions. And Sorry. and even no, I think it's a it's a great point, Jess. And um, you know, 
again, you know, some of the issues there are in the, you know, the testing itself. Um, but of course, the the timing of the administration of it, you know, even when we're talking about the most accurate test, if you get tested too early, um, you know, it can still re- return a false negative. Now, I do want to emphasize that the inaccuracies are usually false negatives, meaning you're getting a negative test result when in fact you are infected. Um, false positives for these types of tests are, are much less common. Um, and that's very different from the antibody tests. And we're not going to talk about those because those have nothing to do with telling us if we're currently infected. And a false um, negative is so dangerous, of course, right, because... right. You know, yeah, I mean, honestly, with a, yeah. with a diagnostic, you'd rather have more false positives because then at least people would be triaging and you'd be erring on the side of caution. Um, and, and I think, you know, let's talk about kind of even the most accurate tests in, in terms of timing of those tests. So, um, you know... I know a lot of people are like, oh, I got tested on on Monday and it was negative. Um, and then I got another test two days later and it was positive, you know, and they they immediately jumped to the assumption that 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 test the two days after the positive test was the the false one. Um, and I think something that's really important is that um, you could test negative on day three or even day five um, and test positive on, you know, two days later. So, you know, day five or day seven. Um, And this is due to that really long incubation period. So in order to have a positive test result, you have to have certain number of virus in your body. And again, those limits of detection are really important there. Um, So if you test too soon in that incubation period, and you simply just don't have enough virus present, um, you'll report or return a negative result. And you certainly can then test positive two days later because now your body has had time to grow more virus, essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Andrea, I, I I don't think you you wanted to. <laughs> I don't think we wanted to talk about this, and I won't get into the specifics. But of course, you know there was recently um, a celebrity or someone at least you know with a with a platform uh, who's talking about how you know oh I tested. What what did he say? You know, I, I took one oh, test. It was positive. Two, one two, test. yeah, two negative tests, then two positive tests, and then he, you know, went on a bit of a tirade about and he and those were rapid antigen tests. He was he was specific about it, and then he, of course, went off on a little bit of a tirade about, um, you know, how they're creating false positives by running PCR cycles for too long, and that's not even the right type of test that he was referring to. Um, but again, false positives are are almost never occurring. It's really the false negative. So if you get a positive test result um, with a diagnostic, either an antigen or a PCR test, you can be pretty confident that you are infected. Right. So long story short, really, you you cannot use tests uh, as immunity passes. You always you continue taking those uh, those precautions, mitigation measures, wear your masks. Under no circumstances should we be gathering in large groups because as we just said, um, even the most accurate test, the PCR test, which is highly accurate, it is fantastic. <laughs> um, if you're not taking it at the right time, you know, you'll, you'll get a result that let's, you know, it might say negative when in fact you're positive. So testing should not be used to justify large gatherings of any kind or, you know, gatherings with people who are outside of your bubble, your household. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really important to mention now, um, especially as we're three days from Thanksgiving. Um, You know, we have a lot of people who are asking about, okay, well, what if I quarantine? What if we all quarantine? You know, in order to 
implement a quarantine to have a safe Thanksgiving gathering with people you don't live with, that needed to be done for 14 days. And that Mm -hmm. needs to be a strict quarantine for everybody involved, meaning no outside contact, not even a trip to the store. Um, We're obviously inside that window now. Uh, Quarantine for three three days doesn't do anything. Um, you know, so at this point, if you haven't quarantined for that strict 14 days, um, you just can't be confident that, that an indoor gathering with other people you don't live with without masks, um, is going to be safe. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. And you know what? I feel like all of this is going to make it just so much sweeter next year when we hopefully are, are able to to gather again. Yeah, um, I mean, to, to be determined, of course. But this year, the risks are just too high. Um, Andrew, did we want to do a recap of of masks? Maybe would that be yeah, helpful? Yeah, I think you briefly, know, just very, very, very quickly. Um, you know, of course, because with Thanksgiving, we're talking about activities that you're not wearing masks, and obviously, that's much riskier than wearing a masks. Um, obviously, you want to be wearing masks whenever you're around people you don't live with, um, even if it's in your own home. Uh, I know it's super inconvenient, but it really is uh, the best measure we have at this point. We're going to talk quickly about the vaccine updates, but we're still well a ways off from having that for general public. Um, best mask materials are going to be, um, you know, thick knit, high, high thread count, um, at least two ply cotton masks for homemade masks. Um, of course, your surgical three ply masks are also quite effective um, for healthcare workers or people in particularly high risk environments. Of course, your N95s or even the FDA approved KN95s um, are going to be very effective as well. Um, masks, again, we're not trapping free-floating virus. I've heard that fallacy many, many times. The virus is contained inside large respiratory droplets that are very effectively stopped in both directions by wearing masks. So both if you're infected, your mask will prevent those from getting spread to other people. And actually, um, recent data now suggests, and CDC has updated that, that recommendation, that um, you wearing your mask can also protect you from potentially inhaling other people's contaminated respiratory droplets. Um, I can say that I personally will not be indoors in any space uh, without a mask on for for quite a long time. Same. And just uh, one thing I wanted to mention, the uh, I think we, we spoke about this on a past episode, but you know the masks that have the valves. Mm. Um, <laughs> not a good idea to wear those while they, they're protecting you. Uh, your release, the valves are releasing <laughs> yes. your droplets. And so you're basically just negating the whole point of wearing a mask, right? Absolutely. <laughs> you could be infecting the people around you. So yeah. Um, and, and very quickly also, um, you know, masks that are very, 
flexible uh, materials, especially thin knit polyester blends, stretchy materials, single ply. Obviously, those are um, certainly less effective, potentially to the level of, of no effectiveness. And please, for the love of all things holy, wear the mask over your nose. (laughs) (laughs) This everywhere. I'm just seeing people, you know, I I know that, you know, we're we're getting there more. I'm seeing more people wear masks, but they're wearing it only over their mouths. And of course, we can release droplets from our nose. Uh, So just please wear wear, and and also breathe in things through our nose, (laughs) of course. So please, please wear them properly. I think something that's a really maybe not a lot of people it has occurred to, but um, you know, when we're testing for COVID, we're taking a nasopharyngeal swab. <laughs> and the reason that is, is because the virus really likes to grow in our nasal cavities. Um, mm-hmm. Those those receptors that it grabs onto are, are very highly expressed there. And there's lots of virus in there. Um, Hotbed. So, yeah. so yeah, <laughs> cover the nose for both directions. <laughs> yes, your Petri dish of a nose, please cover it up. Um, so Andrea, I know you, you, you mentioned vaccines. Obviously, this is all the buzz right now. And I know, like, you know, we're all exciting. It, it's exciting to think that there's some end in sight. Um, yeah. And what, what's really great, and what I'm, I know you'll talk about in a second, is that, you know, preliminary evidence from these phase three trials, it looks like the efficacy is really high for the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines that are all over the news, over 90%. Um, and that's really fantastic. Um, but as you just said, we're, we're, we're a ways away. Um, so I think, you know, maybe if you could just take us through the the pipeline a little bit. Um, I, I would just say that, first of all, we still have to, um, of course, release the vaccines. We have to work out all of these kinks in distribution. There are some storage issues that we could talk about briefly. Um, they'll first be distributed to certain populations, right? So I think it's frontline healthcare workers, then essential workers, and then people who are high risk. So the elderly, people with certain pre-existing conditions and risk factors like COPD, for example. And then I, I think it's not until uh, Q2, Q3, so like spring of 2021, when the general public might start seeing, correct me if I'm wrong there, Andrea. Um, and even then people need to get the vaccine, <laughs> right? I'm sure it's, I, I don't know how long it takes for the vaccine to, um, I, I'm going to use the wrong terminology. I hate <laughs> saying this to an immunologist, but for us to, you know, build up immunity. So it's not like we're snapping our fingers and this is some magical solution. And, you know, um, anyway, sorry, you, you take us through it, Andrea. Yeah, no, gr- Jess, you really kind of hit all the nails on the, on their heads. Um, so, so, you know, we've got four, um, really promising there's, there's 12 in phase three clinical trials right now. And obviously a number of them in phase two, phase one, and even preclinical, but you know, the, the, the four that have garnered the most media attention are the, the two mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, um, who both have released interim data. Um, and then two that are based based on adenovirus-based vaccine, uh, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccines. Now, those two are still in their active phase three trials, so we're not going to touch too much on those. If you want to learn more about the current stage, we did a very in-depth review on a previous episode. Um, But the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, they're both based on an mRNA technology, which in the context of vaccines is a a brand new vaccine technology, but it, it bodes very well. And they both released interim data that suggests that 
efficacy of them are for both is over 90%. Um, and that's, that's significant. That's substantial. Um, you know, it is, you know, even our most well-established vaccines like the MMR, for example, the rubella component has 78% efficacy with, um, with a single dose and a little bit higher with a second dose. So nine over 90% efficacy is, is just quite um, incredible. Um, And what that means is that, um, you know, these vaccines were able to prevent um, physical symptomatic COVID-19 in the vaccinated group compared to the placebo group. Um, Now, they're both planning to apply for FDA emergency use authorizations uh, within the coming days, I believe. And those, of course, will have to take some time to review. But at the at the same time, they're going to be starting to manufacture. And, you know, the goal would be to have limited um, availability for those high risk demographics, uh, maybe by the end of this year or early 2021. Um, And then, of course, scaling up manufacturing for more widespread distribution. A couple of things that are important to note is that both of these are two-dose vaccines. So you have to get uh, one dose and then you have to wait a period of time and then get a second dose. So, you know, as just mentioned, uptake, it's it's not instantaneous, right? We have to get access to the vaccine. And then, of course, we're going to have to get our two doses to have that protection. Um Pfizer's vaccine. Um, so mRNA vaccines, we did a nice post on it yesterday about the technology, but it's basically a piece of the genetic material that um, triggers our cells to produce the viral protein that the immune system then reacts to. So it's very safe to administer because there's no virus involved at all in this process. Um, and they are, these RNA pieces are contained in these little lipid droplets that enable delivery. So Moderna has been able to stabilize these lipid droplets so that it can actually be really, really shelf stable, which is great for distribution. Um, their vaccine is reported to be stable at standard refrigerator temperatures for up to 30 days and standard freezer temperatures for up to six months. Um, Pfizer's, in contrast, needs to be stored at at least minus 80 Celsius um, for optimal stability. So that's going to pose some challenges for distribution in rural areas or even in developing nations. Um, so honestly, my feeling is having two different vaccines with very both very high efficacy, we can prioritize distribution for places that maybe don't have the cold storage access um, for something like, say, the Moderna vaccine, and then places that do have better cold storage access for something like the Pfizer vaccine. But of course, this is all going to take some time. And, and I think, Jess, your your expectation of late Q2, um, so that would be kind of the, the end of June um, to early Q3, so kind of July, August timeframe is, is really what we're looking at realistically for general public access to these vaccines. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what I take away from this is that this is all really promising and and also just absolutely incredible. We did a quick post on this yesterday. You know, thank you, science. Thank you, scientists. Thank you, volunteers who are signing up for these trials. We've we've established like the impossible in less than one year. We've you know, we've really expedited these trials while not compromising safety, you know, and this usually takes uh, like between 10 and 15. 15 years to do what we've done in less than a year. So really very promising. I know we all kind of needed a bit of good news, uh, but I'm worried that it's sort of giving people like changing people's mindset. And it's like, you know, that, that we're, oh, we, you know, there's, there's a solution here and it's like, yes, it looks like we're heading toward that, but we're not quite there yet. So yeah. uh, 
Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, go. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, even even once that those vaccines are out there, um, you know, we still we need to have that that herd immunity. So we need to have 60 to 70 percent of the population protected. Um, and if we're looking at, say, a 90 percent effectiveness, you know, we're going to need 68 to 78 percent of the population vaccinated. So it's going to take some time to do that for sure. Um, uh. So we will certainly be wearing our masks and doing our distancing uh, likely until toward the end of next year. Um, yes. and, and something also, um, you know, that I wanted to know is, you know, we don't know yet how long protection will last with the vaccine. Um, there is some early data that suggests it may last for quite some time, um, but that's going to be ongoing data that we'll be collecting following these phase three participants over time to look at um, kind of the longevity of that protection. Right. Right. Um, and um, I think I think something and of course, we're going to we're going to discuss, you know, safety at a later date. But, um, you know, obviously, safety concerns have come up. And I think something to mention is, you know, as I already said, this these particular vaccines, we're not even dealing with with a virus itself. We're just dealing with making copies of RNA. Um, so we're not dealing with any sort of pathogen or any sort of infectious agent. Um, so these are going to be inherently much more safe. A lot of the time that's invested in that vaccine development pipeline is bureaucratic in nature. And we've been able to bypass that because of the fact that we're in a pandemic. We haven't bypassed safety checkpoints. We've just bypassed a lot of the bureaucratic holdups or, you know, publishing because we're doing all this in real time and we have access to preprints and, you know, we kind of hate the data by press release, but we're getting to see all of it. Um, you know, as it happens, as opposed to waiting several years to having it published. And of course, Andrea, our next big hurdle will be that vaccine uptake. And when we say that, we're talking about, you know, getting people to actually get the vaccine. Um, we <laughs> we get all kinds of troll comments, you know, about <laughs> vaccines and, um, you know, vaccine ingredients. And what well, we're going to talk all about that. Um, so I think, you know, our next big hurdle, and I'm saying this as a public health professional is is going to be to to, to get back the public trust and to debunk so many of these myths around the vaccine and encourage people to get it. Uh, because as you said, I mean, that's how we achieve herd immunity, of course. So yeah, and I think something that that's, that's encouraging to me is that, you know, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of market research. Um, and and it seems that there is a trend of people getting more confident and, and being more receptive to taking these vaccines. Um, I think it, you know, went up from, Oh, I want to say maybe 40 or 50% of the population who was on board to now a little over 70% of the population who said that they would consider getting this once it's released. So, you know, I think it bodes well. I think certainly, you know, scientists and scientific educators have their work cut out for them to to ensure that people, you know, are aware of the fact that these are safe and the, you know, efficacy has been demonstrated. And I'm really excited to seeing the full set of data from these trials. All right, Andrea, uh, you want to take us home? (laughs) Sure. So thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please stay safe during the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday this week. And again, keep in mind the recommendations from scientific and medical experts, not just us, but including um, the CDC have, again, reinforced the recommendation that we should not be traveling or gathering this holiday. 
holiday season. Um, on our next episode, with all of the vaccine hype and excitement, we will start to debunk some of the common vaccine myths and misconceptions. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.